Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Weymouth. Welcome. Come on in, grab a seat. We're good to see you all. Or good to see you, that makes sense. Glad to see you all. That's not a sentence. Russ got it, Russ got it. All right, come on in, find a seat. We'll get started here. Welcome once again. Good to see we've all uh, we've all made it through our, our post-Thanksgiving comas and we're, we're here together once again to worship this morning. Uh, glad you're here. My name's Chris. I'm the pastor here and we'll, we'll get started in worship first just by uh, spending a few moments uh, just in, in, in prayer, in reflection, silently, in our own hearts. So let's do that together now. Please bow and pray with me. was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And gracious Father, we thank you for these words from John's Gospel that announce to us the coming of your Son, the light of the world, who shines into the darkness, the darkness of our sin, the darkness of our own hearts, the darkness of our world. And so, Lord, as we anticipate now this, this, this entry into to the Christmas season, the start of Advent next week, and uh, our, our movement towards the celebrating Christmas together, Lord, remind us anew as we worship, as we study your word, as we speak your word to one another, remind us anew of the, uh, the gift you've given us, the light you've given us in your Son, our Savior who shines into our darkness. So help us to praise you uh, in the light because of the gift of your Son this morning, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand, and we'll sing together.
he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Felt the nails upon. 
announcements uh, to make you aware of this morning, specifically about uh, as we're entering the Christmas season now as a church, Thanksgiving is over, so we'll, we're anticipating celebrating uh, Christmas together as a church family, and so there's a number of things you can see in the Bolton, in the Church Center app, and, and online at waymuschurch.com to, uh, to keep up with as we're, we're going through this season. Uh, first is we're doing two different uh, outreaches this Christmas. One is a, a ministry we're doing with uh, Live Inspired. Uh, which is one of our, our ministry partners, which is, uh, seeks to help train and care for parents and kids in the community, specifically in the area of, of literacy. And so we are uh, doing a ministry where we are collecting stockings for Live Inspired. And what we've gotten is we've gotten a, a list from Live Inspired families of, of three books they're asking for in this Christmas season. And, uh, and then we are agreeing to, to take a stocking for a family, fill it up with those three books, and then bring it back to the church, and we'll, we'll deliver them to those families for Christmas. So... If you signed up for that, those stockings are available, those lists are available. Uh, if you haven't signed up, you can still take a stocking welcome table uh, through these doors. Uh, we just ask that if you take a stocking that you still sign, sign up so we know who to uh, chase down to get the stockings back from before Christmas because I will chase people down if I have to uh, to get those stockings back. So be sure to check that out. It's a great way to reach out to families in our community. And then also we are going to be hosting uh, international students uh, December 15th, 16th, and 17th that weekend. Um, so that, that weekend before Christmas, we'll have some college students in town and we're, we're looking to host, uh, God willing, 10 international students that weekend. So we're looking for people to host those students uh, for that weekend. So you can sign up at the welcome table, sign up in the Church Center app. Uh, if you have any questions about that, you can come, you can talk to me, you can talk to Emily Varner over here on the piano. She's uh, heading that up for us. So it's a great time to, to get to know some students uh, from other countries and to get to welcome them with the welcome we've received in Christ this Christmas. And then as far as our worship 
uh, together goes during Christmas. Uh, there's, there's three services to be aware of. First, December 17th is our Christmas celebration. So that is the Sunday before Christmas Eve. We are going to uh, have a really a family-centered time of uh, having kids in the service singing some songs for us. And then after the service on the 17th, we'll have uh, Christmas cookies and hot chocolate in the community room. Uh, so that'll be our normal service time, 1030. Uh, that will be our normal worship service together, but our kids will be uh, pay- playing a role in that, and we'll be celebrating together afterwards in the community room. And then on Sunday, December 24th, which is Christmas Eve, we'll have two services. We'll have our normal 1030 service, which will be a big blowout Christmas Eve celebration uh, service. And then in the evening, we'll have a Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m., and that'll be a more uh, reflective candlelight uh, service. So we'll it's at 10.30 a.m. Christmas Eve morning, and then 6 p.m. Christmas Eve uh, evening. That's redundant. I don't need to say that. But uh, Christmas evening, we'll have a 6 p.m. service. So be sure to mark your calendars. Uh, hopefully, you can join in on as much of that as possible as we celebrate Christmas together. So uh, let's turn to the Lord now in prayer in light of all these things. Well, merciful Father, we thank you uh, for how much more abundant your mercy and your your grace is than all of our sin. Lord, we thank you that uh, in, in that mercy and in that grace, you've made a way for us to be able to behold you, to praise you, to know you in Christ our Savior. And so as we prepare to celebrate Christmas together, as we enter the season of Advent and starting in December, and as we uh, come together in these different ways of, of serving and reaching out to our community, of worshiping and rejoicing together as a church family, help us to behold you more. Help us to behold the light of your grace in Christ more clearly in the coming weeks as we celebrate together. And help us to to point others, to call them to behold your wonder and your mercy by serving them, Lord, as we uh, donate books to Live Inspired, as we welcome international students. Give us opportunities to share with them the light, the hope that we have in Christ this Christmas because he came into the world, because you sent your son into the world that we might behold you and know you. Lead more people into your presence through faith in Christ, through the worship and service of of our church this season. And Lord, we also lift up to you those who who, who are are, uh, recovering from surgery. We lift up uh, Bill Fredrici to you, Carol Kinnebrew to you, who are recovering from heart surgery. Lord, we ask that you'll give them strength and peace. You'll help them to continue to recover well. Uh, We also lift up Connie Sinuk to you as she continues to to deal with cancer and, and all the challenges therein. Give Vic strength as he cares for her and comes alongside her during this difficult time. And Lord, we also lift up others who are, are walking through times of darkness uh, this Christmas season, as, as holiday season, who are dealing with personal darkness or physical darkness or emotional, spiritual darkness. Lord, we ask that you'll shine your light into their lives, that you'll use us as your church to come alongside them and care for them and love them, uh, to point them to the light and hope of Christ, to comfort them with the presence of of your church, of your family, that you have brought together to behold and worship you for your glory and for our good. So Lord, help us to see you more clearly, to praise you more fully because of all you are and all you've done for us in your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite the kids to come up now. Kids, come to the front, fifth grade and below. We'll uh, we'll keep moving through the catechism here. We're going to finish it off before Christmas, so you guys can come on up front here. Oh, yeah. Whew, got the middle seat this week. <laughs> All right, so we are on question number 
51 this week. You guys, we only have one question left after this week. Isn't that crazy? We've almost made it through all 52 questions of the catechism. So we'll uh, take a break next week for communion, then we'll finish it before Christmas. So we are on question 51 this week, and this is what it says. I'll read it for us. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? Is Christ's ascension. Now, that's a big word at the end, ascension. Have you guys heard that word before? What does it mean to ascend? Do you, does anybody know? Yeah, to go away, to go somewhere, right? Raise your hand if you've ever been in an elevator. Have you ever been in an elevator? Yeah, I've been in an elevator. You've been in an elevator? Yep. So an elevator can go up, right? So you get an elevator and you go up, you ascend. So to ascend is to go up. You know, when you get an elevator, when you go upstairs, when you climb a ladder, climb a tree, you are ascending, you are going up. And so that's what the word ascend means. It means to go up. And so we say, of, of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? That means when Jesus died... He went into the grave, he was buried, and then we believe he rose again, he came back to life, but then he also went even higher, he ascended back to his father. That's what we read about in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus, after he had risen, he, he went back up to heaven, he ascended back up to be with his, his heavenly father. And that's really important, right? That's not Jesus didn't run away from earth, no, he ascended to do something really, really important. And so it's important to know why it's so helpful, why it's such a blessing to us that Jesus ascended, he rose, he went back up to be with his Father. And the answer is this, that because he ascended, Christ is now advocating for us in the presence of his Father and also sends us his Spirit. That's another big word, right? Advocating. It's two big words that both start with A this week. To be an advocate uh, is, is, is an important part of what Jesus does now that he's ascended. And so to explain what an advocate is, I want to tell you guys a little story about uh, when my younger daughter, Lily, was born. Uh, my younger daughter, she's three now, but when she was born, there was a couple days where she was in the hospital, and our older daughter, Riley, uh, there was a few days where she was staying with her grandparents, and so she never actually didn't get to meet Lily in the hospital. She didn't meet her until we came home with the baby from the hospital. And so what happened was, was there was a moment where Riley hadn't met Lily yet, and so me and my wife, Laura, we, we took baby Lily and we brought her to Riley and we said to her, hey, Riley, here is your little sister, Lily. She is part of our family. Do you remember that? Yeah? Yeah, it was a great, really sweet moment of, of us bringing this younger daughter to our older daughter to say, hey, this is part of your family. This is your sister. This is someone who is important and valuable to you. And what my wife and I did there in that moment of bringing, uh, bringing one person to another person, that was an act of advocacy. To advocate for somebody is to, is to go to someone and to, to take them to another person and to, to speak for them, to, to, to tell them, to, to you know, build a relationship, to make a connection. It's to, to speak on somebody else's behalf, to speak for someone to someone else. But it's not just coming between two people, it's actually going and bringing someone to someone else. So just like we brought our younger daughter to our older daughter to welcome her, what Jesus does as our advocate is if we believe in him, he takes us and brings us to God, to our Father. And he says to the Father, look, this is your son, this is your daughter. They're part of your family because I paid the price for them. Because I died and I rose again and died. I paid the price for their sins. I rose again to bring them into your family. And so when Jesus uh, ascended, when he rose back to his Father, he is our perfect advocate. If we believe in him, then he is the one who brings us to God, who comes uh, to God the Father on our behalf so that we can have a relationship with God. But Jesus didn't just do that. The Bible also tells us that from heaven, from this ascended place, he sends us the Holy Spirit. 
And so if we believe in Jesus, we can have the Holy Spirit living in us. We can have his presence and his power within us. So we can know God. We can have a relationship with him. We can walk with him. So the fact that Jesus rose again is really, really important because it means that Jesus is our advocate. He can bring us to God. He doesn't just bring us to God. He also brings God to us. He sends his spirit to dwell in us, to live in us. And so the fact that Jesus ascended is, is so important to our life as, as Christians if we believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, so let's so think about that. As we think about the story of Jesus, the, the, the importance of Jesus' death, his resurrection, we don't want to forget his ascension, that he is our advocate, that he brings us to God, that he sends the Spirit to us. Sound good? All right, well, let's pray together. Well, gracious Father, we thank you that we can pray to you and that we can do so because we have an advocate. We have Jesus, your son, who's brought us to you and who sent the Spirit to us, the Spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit who interprets our prayers, interprets our groaning, who reminds us that we are your children. And so we thank you that even just the act of praying reminds us of all you've done for us, that we can only pray to you because of your grace, because of your perfect work for us in your Son who died and who rose again and who ascended so that we can know you and love you and worship you. So help us to do that now together, both here in the service and also with Wayne with Kids. Help us to go and worship and learn about you together because of your grace in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, thanks, guys. You're going to go to, to Wayne with Kids now with uh, the Namaths, and then the rest of us will stand and we'll sing together. So please stand and sing with us. Hey. 
you to open your Bibles to the book of Micah. This morning, the book of Micah, uh, Micah chapter 1. Uh, we're spending some time here at the, the end of 2023 and then into 2024 in the Minor Prophets. These are a section of 12 books towards the end of the Old Testament. And Now don't worry, we're not going to be covering all of the, the 12 Minor Prophets. We're just looking at two here. Uh, we'll get the other 10 at some point down the road, God willing. But uh, we finished uh, the book of Jonah uh, last Sunday, Jonah chapter 4, and then uh, we'll turn one page over to the book of Micah, uh, which is the next, next prophet in, in the Old Testament here. So the book of Micah follows the book of Jonah uh, towards the end of your Old Testament and the second half of your, your Bibles here. It uh, looks like this. If you're looking for where it is, you can just kind of open it. It's kind of towards the, towards the end of the Old Testament there, the book of Micah. Uh, we'll look at the, the whole first chapter uh, this morning and, and as, as we go, the plan is to, to continue through Micah as we celebrate Christmas and, and Advent together to do, to, to do Advent in the prophets here, Advent in Micah. So uh, we'll look at first uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. 
So follow along as I read. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentations of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good. Because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steed to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give pardon gifts to Morsheth Gath. The house of Akzib shall be the seat of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Amen. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Oh, gracious Father, as we come to your word this morning, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, now that uh, Thanksgiving is over, I think it is officially legal to start decorating for Christmas. Right, I think a few of you lawbreakers got an early start on this. I think the entire city of Medina broke the law on this and decorated the, the weekend before Thanksgiving. But now Thanksgiving is over, the turkey's been eaten, the parade has been watched, the naps have been taken, and it is officially okay to decorate for Christmas, right? And one of the most frustrating things that can happen when you decorate for Christmas is you get the tree all put up, you get it all set up, you get the lights all strung, and you plug them in, and you're all ready to see the beautiful, lit-up Christmas tree, and the lights just don't turn on. The lights don't turn on. Instead of a beautiful, warm, Christmas, colorful, or white, whatever you do, lights, you just see a dark, depressing Christmas tree. 
That's one of the most frustrating things that can happen when you plug in uh, your Christmas tree expecting light, but instead you get darkness. And as we uh, enter this Christmas season as a church, you might be excited. We, we're all excited about the warm, uh, light-filled, fun-filled messages and moments that we'll be sharing together as a church family. And there are a lot of fun things and warm things and delightful things to come, God willing. But this morning, as we begin our study in the book of Micah, I hate to tell you that we are actually going to start our celebration of Christmas together, not with light, but with darkness. We are going to start not with a line of of shining, shimmering lights on our tree, but instead we are going to start with a line of lights that have gone out. We are going to start with a sober reminder of the darkness in the human heart that makes the light of Christmas so important. See, Micah, he was a prophet during a particularly volatile time in Israel's history. Micah was a prophet during a time in which the kingdom of Israel had been divided through civil war into two kingdoms, into the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. Micah was a prophet during what we call the the time of the divided kingdom. And verse 1 tells us that Micah was a prophet from Morsheth from a town in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was a prophet during the reign of three kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were three kings of Judah, of the southern kingdom. In particular, it seems that Micah's ministry took place mainly during the reigns of Ahaz and then his son, Hezekiah. And this is significant because there's a huge contrast between these two kings. You see this if you read the book of 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. Ahaz was one of the the worst kings, if not the worst king, that Judah ever saw. Ahaz was the king of Judah, and yet he led the people of Judah, the people of God, into horrific idolatry and corruption. Ahaz led them to to worship and embrace uh, foreign gods, foreign idols in Jerusalem, in Judah. He led them to make offerings to foreign gods like Baal, and, and Ahaz even went so far as to sacrifice his own sons as offerings to these foreign gods. He went so far to, as to cut up the, the vessels and the, the things in the temple that the people of Israel used and to shut the doors of the temple and to set up altars that stead, instead throughout the city of Jerusalem for people to worship these false gods. Ahaz was not a good king. He was a wicked, idolatrous king. But his, his son Hezekiah, on the other hand, made major reforms in Judah. Hezekiah became king and he tore down the idols that Ahaz had set up. He, he led the, the people of Judah to turn back to the Lord in trust, even as they faced the, the, the major threats from the powerful nation of Assyria, a nation to whom Israel and Judah were often forced to pay tribute. And I want to go through that history because I want you to see that when Micah was prophesying in Judah, he was prophesying, he was ministering during a time when God's people struggled with corruption and idolatry from within and also fear and oppression from without. That was the time in which Micah was a prophet. And in the midst of all this, Micah proclaimed the coming judgment of God for his people's idolatry. But he also proclaimed the coming salvation of God for a remnant of his people who remained faithful. Those are the two big themes we see in the book of Micah, the coming judgment of God, but then also the coming salvation of God. 
And so there are moments of great darkness in Micah as God's judgment is promised against the idolatry and injustice of his people. But there are also moments when the lights start to flicker on. Moments where hope and restoration are promised. And they're promised through the coming of a shepherd king who's going to come to deliver his people, to bring them from darkness to light. But in order to rejoice in this light, to fully understand its beauty, we have to spend some time feeling the frustration and the grief of the darkness. And so Micah's prophecy begins in chapter 1 with the announcement that God will judge idolatry with the destruction of exile. God will judge idolatry with the destruction of exile. This was Micah's warning for, for Judah, and it's also a warning for us today as well. That idolatry leads to exile. Idolatry leads to exile. And Micah, he expounds this argument for us in this poetic, prophetic way by first declaring God's judgment against Samaria in verses 2 to 7, and then God's judgment against Judah in verses 8 to 16. So look at each of these sections together this morning. First, we'll see God's judgment against Samaria in verses 2 to 7. When we look at verse 2, we see that Micah's prophecy begins in a courtroom. It begins in a courtroom. The word of the Lord has come to Micah, and he declares in verse 2, Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Now, I've never been in a courtroom. I've, I've had traffic tickets and parking tickets and things like that, but I've never had to go to court. But I know from television, I know from watching court shows, TV shows, that in a courtroom you have a judge, you have a prosecutor, you have the defendant, right? And so what, what Micah is saying here, you have the witnesses for the prosecution. And so Micah is using this picture when he says the Lord will be a witness against you. He is bringing to mind this imagery of a courtroom, this imagery of, of God as judge, God as witness for the prosecution against the people of the earth. Micah, he's calling for the entire earth to hear, to pay attention, to listen up, because God's judgment is being announced against them, because the Lord himself has come to be a witness against the earth. The Lord has called the earth into the courtroom. The creator of everything is going to prosecute his creation. And Micah uses this beautiful, this amazing, transcendent imagery to describe the magnitude of this judgment. Look at verse 3, he says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Look at this picture. Micah, he describes the Lord coming down from his place in the heavens, coming down from the, to tread upon the high places of the earth. Micah is describing God as being so glorious, so exalted, that when he comes down, the mountains themselves, the highest places of the earth, are going to be crushed under his feet. They're going to be tread upon like ants under his feet. And this exalted Lord has come to bring judgment upon the earth. And as he does so, creation, himself, creation itself is undone. Look at verse 4 again. This imagery he uses is that mountains and valleys, they're giving, their, they're giving way underneath him. They're melting away like hot, like hot wax, like falling water. Like it wants us to see vividly the total destruction that occurs when the Lord in his glory comes to judge the earth. 
He wants to see how vividly, how powerful this destruction is. And if you were one of Micah's original listeners, one of his original audience in Jerusalem, then you'd, you'd be tracking with Micah at this point. Because typically in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, when God is described as coming out in this way, in this kind of judgment, usually he was described as coming out to defeat the enemies of his people. So you'd be cheering Micah on at this point. As you read these first four verses, you'd be like, all right, Micah, let's go. God is going to come in power. He's going to come and defeat our enemies. He's going to come and defeat the worldly nations of the earth, the enemies of his people. But then look at what Micah says in verse 5. All this, all this judgment, all this imagery, all this destruction is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Uh Uh-oh, that's a surprise there. That's unexpected. God is not coming out in his mind-boggling, transcendent, glorious judgment uh, to judge uh, the enemies of his people. Micah has given us this this mind-boggling depiction of God's power and God's glory over creation. But then in verse 5, he turns to show that this power is being directed against Jacob, against Israel, against God's own people. The Lord of creation is coming to judge, to prosecute, not the enemies of his people, but his own people themselves for their transgressions, for their sins. And Micah goes on to show, to describe where this transgression comes from. He says that the transgression of Jacob is Samaria and the high place, the transgression of Judah is Jerusalem. He names Samaria and Jerusalem the capital cities of the two kingdoms, the two nations. What he's saying here is that it's these capitals, it's the the leadership of God's people. It's the capital cities which have led God's people into transgression, have led them into rebellion against the God of creation. And if we remember the context, the time period of Micah, we can understand what he's saying here. Because the kings in Samaria, the kings in Jerusalem, they had led God's people to worship false idols, to worship and embrace foreign gods. And it's likely that as we read chapter 1, Micah is prophesying during the time of Ahaz, during the time of this most wicked, idolatrous king. Micah is prophesying in chapter 1. He's looking around him in the city of Jerusalem, and he sees altars. He sees idols at every corner of the city. He sees how his king has led his people into rampant idolatry. And so God's word comes to Micah to declare God's judgment against his idolatrous people. And this judgment starts in Samaria. It starts in the northern kingdom. Micah describes how God is going to take this mighty city and flatten it into a field for planting vineyards. Imagine that. Imagine if you were in downtown Manhattan and then all of a sudden all the buildings, the entire city, the glory and might of that city is just flattened into a field, into a field for planting a vineyard. That is what God is going to do to Samaria here in these verses. He's promising he's going to to, to flatten it, to tear out its stones, to to pour its stones into a valley until only the foundation of Samaria is left. God is going to completely rain judgment and destruction on this city. And as he does so, Micah declares that all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she shall them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. You see, the ultimate reason God is going to be raining destruction down on Samaria in this way 
is because of her idolatry. Because the people who have been chosen by God to have a special covenant relationship with him, they've instead engaged in spiritual adultery with foreign gods. They've given themselves over to worship and serve and trust other idols, other nations, other false gods instead of the Lord, the Lord who created them, the Lord who rescued them from slavery, who made them his special people. And this charge of spiritual adultery, it's highlighted for us by the imagery Micah uses in verse 7 of prostitution. He talks about the fee of a prostitute, and, and scholars and commentators point out that there's real historical backing behind this imagery. Because many of these idolatrous practices that Israel had adopted from foreign nations, many of these idolatrous practices involved the use of temple prostitution, of temple prostitutes. And often the money exchanged for that purpose was then melted down and used as gold and silver for casting idols. And so quite literally, these these idols that the people are worshiping were themselves made from the fees of prostitutes. And so then God is promising that when he comes in judgment, the idols of Samaria, which were literally molded from fees given to prostitutes, they will once again be captured and melted back down and used once again as currency for prostitution. And what, how commentators make sense of this is, is, is they write that what, what Micah is promising here is not just that Samaria is going to be just destroyed, but that Samaria is going to be conquered. That a foreign nation is going to come and conquer the city, and that this conquering army will, will take and melt down the idols of Samaria and use the gold and silver to once again make currency. And to use that currency for prostitution as traveling soldiers were known to do. And so Micah is using a vivid illustration here to quite literally say that these idols, which were cast from debased practices, they will once again be returned to their dishonorable use. That God is going to lay waste not just to the city of Samaria, but to the idols of Samaria. He's going to destroy them and dishonor them. And he's going to use a foreign nation like Assyria to do it. And what we're meant to see from this is that the the God of the universe, the Lord of creation, he will not sit idly by and let the idolatry of his people go unnoticed. He will not sit idly by and let the idolatry of his people go unnoticed. No, God takes idolatry seriously. He's working to destroy these idols. He's going to judge the idolatry of his people. And the particular way he's going to do so is the destruction of exile. It's by bringing in a conquering army to come and capture the city and destroy the idols and send the people into exile. God judges the idolatry of his people with the destruction of exile. And even though we live in a different time than Micah did, even though we are not ourselves ancient Israel, Idolatry poses the same danger for us as it did for them. Because you see, when we talk about sin in the Bible, when the Bible talks about sin, sin is not just, we're not just talking about doing bad things. We're not just talking about breaking God's rules. Sin in the Bible, it's not just wrong behavior. It's also wrong worship. It's wrong worship. See, the reason that we engage in sinful behaviors is because at our hearts, at our cores, We are trusting and serving and worshiping some other idol instead of God. 
And so if we have to do something that goes against God's law, if we have to embrace something that's sinful in order to satisfy or claim or get that idol, that thing we're ultimately living for, that thing we're ultimately trusting, then we'll do it. If given the choice between obeying God's word or doing what our idol wants us to do or what gets us that idol, then we'll, we'll go with the idol. We'll sin in order to, to serve the idols in our hearts. What we see throughout Scripture is that immorality and impurity always follow idolatry. That's what Romans 1 is all about, how idolatry leads to immorality and impurity. And when we embrace this idolatry, when we embrace this sin, this rebellion, when we worship and trust other things instead of the Lord of creation who created us and made us to know him, to embrace this idolatry is to exchange life for death. It's to exchange light for darkness. Because our creator God made us to find our life and our light and our security in him. Not in our feelings, not in our achievements, not in some other person or some status or some institution or movement or thing. We're made to find this light and this life in God. And so God will not give our idolatry a free pass. Because it's too important This idolatry, this wrong worship, it's an affront to God's holiness. It leads us away from the true life, the true security we were made for with Him that comes from worshiping and knowing Him and trusting Him ultimately. This idolatry leads us into the exile of death and darkness apart from the life and the light of God's presence. And so God will work radically up the idols in the lives of his people, in the hearts of his people. He did that in Samaria, and not just in Samaria, but also he promises to do that in Judah. And so Micah moves from God's judgment against Samaria then to God's judgment against Judah. Against Judah. Now it's been an interesting week uh, if you're a sports fan in Northeast Ohio here, right? We had a great Sunday last Sunday, right? If you're a Browns fan, right? We beat the Steelers. Apologies to you Steelers fans out there. You two or three of you, whatever. Um, but, you know, for like the first time I can remember, I, I mean, we, we beat the Steelers and it was a great Sunday. It was a great celebration. But then, of course, you have yesterday, you have Saturday with Ohio State and Michigan, which was not as exciting, right? Which was not as fun, which is not a celebratory, which is more of a disappointment. And so we've kind of, we've run the gamut this week. We've gone through the roller coaster of being a Northeast Ohio sports fan from Sunday to Saturday. And a day like yesterday, right, whether it's whatever your team is, whatever team you support, it's always hard when that team loses, especially to their hated rivals, especially to the team you always want to beat. You know, when we have a home team, when you have a a team you support, you never want to see your team or your city or your state have to deal with the grief of defeat, of loss. That's always a hard thing to go through. And for Micah, the city of Jerusalem was his home team, was his, uh, the city that he cared about, the city he worked in, the city he served in. He was a prophet in Jerusalem. That's likely where he's preaching, proclaiming this message in the book of Micah. And if you were in Jerusalem hearing this message, as as shocking and as horrible as it sounded for Samaria in verses 1 to 7, you might take comfort in the fact that, well, at least it's not our team, right? Hey, we're not not in fourth place in the AFC North, right? We're we're doing pretty good. We're not as bad as that other team. Yeah, sure, that other team, that other city is the city that's going to receive God's judgment. Samaria is in trouble. But here in Jerusalem, we're okay. We're doing pretty good in the standings. We're doing all right. We're pretty secure. 
That's how you might be feeling if you're one of Micah's original readers hearing this, original listeners hearing this message. That, man, that sounds really bad for Samaria, but at least our city, at least our home team is doing okay. That, yes, God's promising destruction against Samaria, but, he's not prom- but at least it's not Judah, at least it's not Jerusalem. But then the dagger comes in verses 8 and 9. The dagger comes when Micah declares, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Look at that. Micah, he declares that he is lamenting. He is grieving like a wild animal. Because his home team is going to lose too. Because his city is in trouble too. Because God is not just bringing his judgment against Samaria, but he's bringing his judgment against Judah as well. The wound of Samaria, the destruction that's been wrought by her idolatry, it's incurable. And it is coming to Judah. The judgment of God is, is coming to the gate of Micah's people. It's coming to the very doorstep of Jerusalem. And to emphasize this progression, Micah, he lists off these, this extraordinary list of prophecies in verses 10 to 15. We read this, and you know, this, it's one of those great sections of the Bible where there's a list of really hard names to say. That's really fun to read when you're reading it in front of 80 people, right? Um, he's, he has this list of wild names. What he's doing here is he's listing off the towns that a conqueror, a foreign conqueror like Assyria, would likely conquer on their way to Jerusalem. What Micah is doing in verses 10 to 15 is he is prophesying, he is warning, he is lamenting over towns that would be caught in the path of invasion. When a conqueror comes to take Jerusalem in response to the sins of the people. Micah is lamenting for these towns and, and the progression, how he orders it, the, the towns he chooses, the way he, put, the way he puts them in order. This progression it contains an important illusion for us, an illusion uh, that cuts to the very heart of God's people. Because Micah starts this list of towns with, with the city of Gath. Gath, which is a city that was just outside of Jerusalem. It was a significant city in the life of David, Israel's greatest king. If you read in your Bibles the, the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 17, we have the, the famous story of David and Goliath. The familiar story of David, the shepherd boy, who goes and defeats the great giant Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, we read about how Saul and the army of Israel, they're, they're drawn up for battle against the, the Philistines. And the, the Philistines' champion was Goliath. But what's notable for us here is that in verse 17, it tells us that Goliath's name was Goliath of Gath. He was Goliath from Gath. Gath was Goliath's hometown. And he was so strong and so tall that, that, that nobody was brave enough to face him. And so Goliath and the Philistines, they taunted the Israelites. But then young David, the shepherd boy, he shows up and he doesn't like how God's people are being taunted, how God himself is being taunted. And and so he volunteered to take on Goliath. And of course, the rest is history. David defeats Goliath with a sling. And it's striking how Micah begins his list of towns with Gath here, with Goliath's hometown. And this mention of Gath, that would have brought to mind for Micah's audience who, who knew this story, who knew their Bibles, it would have brought to mind the taunts of the Philistines, the taunts of Goliath, of their enemies against the people of God. It would have brought to mind how God used a shepherd boy, he used a servant uh, to defeat their enemies, to bring them this great triumph. This mention of Gath 
would have reminded them of one of David's greatest moments. But then jump ahead to the end of the list in verse 15, where Micah, he ends this list of towns by declaring, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. And this location here, Adullam, is another important one in the life of David, but for opposite reasons as the city of Gath. As we read in 1 Samuel 22 uh, that David, at this point in his life, he was forced to flee from King Saul because David had been anointed as the new king of Israel and Saul wanted to kill him. And we read in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 22 that David escaped to the cave of Adullam. And David, who had, who had once gloriously defeated this giant Goliath, who had this moment of triumphant victory against the enemies of his people, he's now forced to, to, to hide in fear in a cave in Adullam because of the sins of King Saul. And so what Micah is doing here is he's starting this list in verse 10 with a mention of Gath, with, with a reminder of this one of glory and victory for David. But then he ends the list in verse 15 with a mention of Adullam, which was a place of fear and defeat for David. And what he's doing here is he's showing us that like David, Israel, Judah, is going to go from glory and victory to fear and hiding. They're going to go from triumph to defeat. They too are going to be pursued by an earthly king who wants to destroy them. And these towns are going to be swallowed up by this conqueror, this conqueror that God is going to bring of his judgment. And as Micah describes these towns on the path of destruction, he uses this, this witty, kind of ironic wordplay. He kind of uses the, the, you know, the ancient version of dad jokes here to highlight how utterly God is going to invert and undo uh, these cities. And he does so by using the names of the towns that he picks out. And just to, to look at a few examples, in verse 11, Micah warns the inhabitants of the town Shapir. In this town, the, the name of this town, Shapir, it, it sounds like the Hebrew word for beauty. And this town was a town that was known for its beautiful garments and clothing. But Micah warns them that when God's judgment comes, the inhabitants of Shapir will walk in nakedness and shame. The clothing and the beauty that they trusted in will be taken away from them. The whole source of their identity as a people will be removed. They will walk in nakedness and shame when God's judgment comes. Another important one to see is the city of Lachish in verse 13. Lachish was a city renowned in Judah for its military might. And Micah calls this city to harness the steeds to the chariots. He tells them, hey, get your chariots of war ready. But not because you're going to battle, but because you're going in retreat. To harness the steeds and the chariots for retreat when God's judgment comes. Because he says that it was in Lachish that the transgression of Israel began. And what Micah is referencing here is that the start of Judah's idolatry, it came when they began trusting in their own military might instead of trusting in God himself. That Judah's idolatry was not just that they worshipped foreign gods, but that they trusted in their own power, their own strength, instead of God. And so the very chariots that aided their idolatry will now be used to aid their retreat. And then Micah, he gets to his own hometown, the place he's from in verse 14, to Marsheth Gath. And the name of this town sounds like the Hebrew word for betrothed. And this is ironic because Micah says that Judah will give parting gifts 
uh, to Morsheth. And, and the word parting gifts here is, was used to refer to, to wedding gifts or, or dowries, the gifts that a father would give to, to, to the groom when his daughter was married. And so this town whose name sounds like betrothed is going to be given a dowry, a wedding gift from Judah because this town is going to be given over in marriage to another. They're going to be given over to their conquerors. And Micah promises the coming of this conqueror in verse 15. And then he, he calls on the inhabitants of Jerusalem in verse 16 to mourn, to grieve. He tells them to cut off their hair in mourning. It's traditional at that time, if you were, if you were mourning, you would cut a, a small patch out of your hair, a small bald, a bald patch to, to show that you were in mourning. But here in Micah, he's calling them not just to cut off a patch of their hair, but all of their hair to make themselves completely bald because that is how great their mourning, that is how great their grief is going to be. For the children of their delight, these towns that he's just listed, they are going to be captured and conquered and sent into exile. Micah calls the city of Jerusalem to grieve, to mourn, because God is going to judge the idolatry of his people with the destruction of exile. And God takes our idolatry today just as seriously as he did the idolatry of the people of Judah 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. Because like them, our idolatry will also lead us into the destruction of exile. Now this is not to say that uh, God will also bring in a foreign nation to take over our country. Right? We are not ancient Israel. America is not ancient Israel. We have a different situation, a different relationship with God than ancient Israel did. And so we, we shouldn't read things like this and look, for, look at what is happening between other nations uh, as evidence of what, of what God is, is doing in response to our idolatry. We don't want to do that, but we can say that our idolatry will merit us judgment and exile. If we continue in unrepentant idolatry, in worshiping and trusting other things ultimately instead of God, things like our own beauty, our own strength, our own might, our own power, our own achievements, our own, our own uh, moral successes, our own spiritual track record, our own community or institutions or, or, or whatever, that other person, if we continue unrepentantly trusting these things, if we don't turn away from these things, then that idolatry will, will carry consequences for us both now and into eternity. This idolatry, this trusting of created things rather than the creator of, of false gods instead of the one true God, it will lead us into immorality and impurity in this life. And our lives will be filled with insecurity because we will continually be looking to these idols that will continue to disappoint us. Because these idols like our beauty or our strength or our money or our stuff or our achievements, they promise life, but they can never deliver. They will fail us. They will let us down. We will never have enough or they will leave us disappointed. And so idolatry will always lead us into immorality or impurity or insecurity. And that's just in this life. Because what will also happen is if we continue to live in unrepentant idolatry, if we never turn away from these idols and trust instead in God, if we have never trusted in Him, instead trust in these idols, then, then when we die one day, we will experience the ultimate judgment, the ultimate exile from God in hell. We will be ultimately exiled from God's presence and spend eternity in hell apart from light and 
the light and life we were meant to have in God. And so idolatry was not just a problem that God's people struggled with thousands of years ago. Idolatry is a problem that we struggle with every day. This is the darkness in our own hearts that only brings destruction and death. But even in the midst of all this darkness, there's a flicker of light at the end of the chapter. Because in verse 16, Micah promises that the children of Israel's delight are going to be sent into exile. But if we keep reading the book of Micah, and if we keep reading our Bibles, then we'll discover that there is another child of delight who's going to be brought into exile. There's another child who is going to come, a child who's promised by one of Micah's contemporaries, the prophet Isaiah, who declares in Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And the darkness that Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah 9 is the same darkness Micah is talking about. It's, it's his own promise of judgment and exile. Because Isaiah has just spent chapter 8 declaring the coming invasion of Assyria against Judah. But then in chapter 9, Isaiah goes on to declare that the people who see this darkness of judgment, of exile, they will also go on to see a great light. They will see a, a light that will multiply the nation and increase its joy. A light that will lead them to rejoice before God as with joy before the harvest. A light that will totally end Israel's war and bloodshed. And so how will this happen? How will this light shine into such darkness? Well, Micah tells us in verse 6, or Isaiah tells us in verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, even though the people of Israel, even though their sin and their idolatry led them from the, the triumph of David to the defeat of David, another David is going to come. Another child is going to be born. And this child is going to bring them from defeat to victory, from darkness to light. Micah promised that because of their idolatry, Israel's children will be taken into exile. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story because another child is going to be born to God's people. A child who is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, because this child is indeed God's Son. He is God Himself. And just as Micah described in verse 3, this Son of God will also come from His place in the heavens to tread upon the earth. But the Son of God will come not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. And just as Micah promises in verse 15 that a conqueror is going to come to conquer his own people, to conquer God's people, so too will this Son of God grow up and himself be conquered, himself be exiled from the city of Jerusalem and nailed to a cross in the wilderness. 
Because on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, he was forsaken by his Father. He declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was experiencing in that moment on the cross was the ultimate judgment, the ultimate exile from God that we deserve. He bore that ultimate judgment, that ultimate exile in our place. Even when we were lost in our idolatry, lost in the death of trusting these other idols instead of God, Jesus still came and bore ultimate exile for us, ultimate judgment for us, so that we can be forgiven in Him and brought back home in Him. See, idolatry is serious. Our idolatry leads to exile. But in His grace, God sent His Son to bear that ultimate judgment, to bear that ultimate destruction, to bear that ultimate exile for us. So if we trust in Christ, if we turn from all our empty idols that leave us into immorality and impurity and insecurity, if we instead turn and cast our faith on Christ alone, if we rest in Him as our perfect Savior and King, then we can be delivered from the darkness of judgment and death that we deserve. We can be brought into the light and the life we were made for with God. And that changes how we deal with our idols now. That changes how we celebrate, how we worship, how we mourn, how we deal with our sin, how we deal with the idols that seek to continue to take root in our hearts. Because when we face this kind of darkness, the darkness in our hearts, the darkness in our world, we can remember that in Christ, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So as we enter this Christmas season, let us not ignore the darkness in our own hearts, the darkness in our own world, but let us instead take that darkness to the only one who can flood our darkness with light. So let's pray. Faithful Father, we thank you for this reminder that comes even in these hard words from Scripture, even in words of judgment and darkness that remind us of the sin that lies at the root of our hearts, the idolatry that seeks to, to take control of our lives, to lead us into immorality and impurity and insecurity. Lord, help us to turn away from these idols, Lord. Let your light shine into the darkness of our hearts. Show us anew the light, the glory of your Son of your child of delight who was born into the world to bear our exile, to bear our darkness so we can walk in his light. Lord, let that, be, let that light be what helps us to cast aside any other idols, to turn away from other false gods or false trusts and instead rely and rest on you alone. Let this Christmas season be a reminder for us of both the darkness that created the need for Christ to come into the world, but also of the grace that led you to send your son into the world, that we might know true life, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness that has not overcome it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let us respond to that uh, with one final song as we stand and sing together.
letter of John. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Go in peace.